0: Refusing to believe that Jesus would be crucified. Inability to cast out a demon. Keeping children and people who aren't of us away from Jesus. Unwillingness to give up all your wealth to follow Jesus. Wanting to be first. What is the root cause of all these seemingly unrelated ideas? Pride. When we put our plan above God's, we think we know what is best, what we want value and prioritize should be first above what God wants and values and prioritizes when we trust in our ability instead of God's. We trust in money. We trust in knowledge. We trust in power. Pride keeps us from coming to God in the right way. What is that right way? Humble service. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Mark 9.35. The disciples are focused on being first all throughout this section. What else is that right way? Childlike faith. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Children are not perfect, but they often demonstrate simple trust. Following Jesus is another part of that right way. There is no one who has left for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive eternal life. Following Jesus is not a way to manipulate God into giving us what we want. It is, as we see at the end of our section, an eagerness to follow Jesus because of the goodness he has shown to us. And so from these two chapters, I think we see this idea, follow Jesus in humble service with childlike faith. Follow Jesus, first of all, in humble service. Humble service demands that we stop trusting our knowledge over God's. Jesus foretells the coming of God's kingdom with power. Verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus then demonstrates a preview of that power in the transfiguration in verses 2 through 8. He unveils his glory like when God appeared to Moses in the Old Testament. And then two prophets of old, Moses and Elijah, appear. So Peter puts forward his plan. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In Peter's lack of certainty, he should have been quiet, for he did not know what to answer. But then he becomes terrified because a cloud forms overshadowing them and a voice comes out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they look around and see no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Jesus says, I will come and the kingdom of God will come with power. He gives them a glimpse of that up on the mountain. And then as they're coming back down the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, he gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So Jesus says, don't tell people what you've just seen. And they say, wait a minute, what do you mean rose from the dead? They seized on that statement, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They said, don't the scribes say Elijah must come first? Jesus explains, he did come and restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. It is not the Elijah that appeared uh, here, but it was John the Baptist. And we saw that Herod put him to death. And he came first, and now Jesus is coming as the Messiah. And so from this first section here of Mark chapter 9, what false knowledge do you trust in? We assume that we know many things to be true that we find to be false when we compare them with God's unfolding plan. The disciples thought the best plan was to stay up on the mountain, but that was not God's plan. The scribes quoted all these verses, and they knew them very well, but they missed the prophecies unfolding right in front of their very eyes. When we trust our own knowledge and set it up above Scripture, we demonstrate pride, not humble service. Humble service also demands that we stop trusting in our ability. The scribes and disciples in the next little section are arguing about how to cast out a demon, The large crowd is watching them go back and forth. Jesus and Peter and James and John come up, and the rest of the disciples are there, and the crowd is there, and the scribes are there, and they're all having this argument because they've just tried to cast a demon out, and it hasn't worked. Jesus says, though, what are you discussing? And so the man who had brought his son to be healed steps up, and he says, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Jesus rebukes the crowd and then summons the boy. He says, O oh unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They bring the boy, but when he saw him, immediately the Spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Jesus then questions the father about his son's affliction and about his own faith. How long has this been going on from childhood? It is often thrown him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And then we have that familiar phrase. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Jesus then casts out the demon. When he sees the crowd is rapidly gathering, he rebukes the unclean spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him, do not enter him again. It cries out, throws him into terrible convulsions, and came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. Why does Jesus raise a boy from death or seeming death? back to life right after he's been talking about his own death and resurrection to the disciples so that they would pay attention to those words why didn't it work verse 28 this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer what then does that imply they were not praying and seeking god's power and casting out the demon they were trying to do it of their own strength What faulty abilities do you trust in? We assume the power to accomplish much or even everything in life comes from ourselves. But Jesus makes it clear that for this man to be delivered, they needed to pray, this boy rather, they needed to pray and trust in God, not in themselves. When we trust in our own strength and don't seek God's, we demonstrate pride and not humble service. There are many things that we can trust in. We can trust in money, we can trust in our connections with people, we can trust in our knowledge, all of these sorts of things. But when we trust in our abilities, forgetting that they all came from God, and failing to seek God, we're not serving God in a humble way. Humble service also demands that we stop trusting our goals over God's. We see this in verses 30 through the end of the chapter. Jesus teaches about his death and resurrection. They went out and began to go through Galilee. He was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. The disciples are confused. They did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him. Jesus then confronts them. He began to question them once they came to Capernaum. What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had been discussing with one another which of them was the greatest. Jesus then confronts them and says, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name does not receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. So with this illustration of a child, the one who receives one like this receives me, and ultimately you're not receiving me but God and the Father in heaven who sent me to you. So, what's their response? Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Jesus says, Receive the ones who are following after me, and you've received me, and you've received God in heaven. They say, We didn't receive him, we tried to make him stop. Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there was no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. There's a, a joke that's told about a guy who gets up to heaven. And when he gets up to heaven, he says, he's looking around and he sees all these different areas. He says, what's this one over here? He says, well, that one's for the Presbyterians. He says, what's this one over here? Well, that one's for this other group. And he sees one with a high wall around it. He says, what's that one? He says, That's the, that one's for the Baptists. They don't think anybody else is here. I say that. We might chuckle at it or not. We might not think it's not funny at all. My point is this we make the assumption that unless someone believes and looks and behaves exactly like us they're not serving God we can take that too far obviously right there are certain core truths that people have to agree to to be genuinely considered believers if someone says I don't believe Jesus is God if someone says I can earn my way to God by being a good person then that's not what it means to be a Christian someone who follows after Jesus And yet there are people who are different from us in many ways in the way that they do church. It could be in the way their church is organized. Do they have an official pastor or do they have a group of elders? Do they they meet in houses? Do they meet in a building? Do they um, sing songs with instruments that we don't use or with no instruments at all? There's all sorts of differences that can exist between a variety of groups. And at the end of it, what has happened in our society is that in our efforts to maintain the purity of the church, we've splintered and splintered and splintered and splintered. The attempts to reunite God's people where they've gone wrong is where they've ignored important essential truth about the gospel, right? Because if somebody says, I can earn my way to God, and someone else says, you can't earn your way to God, those two people can't be... um considering each other as fellow christians because they believe two very different things right and yet in this story where jesus talks to the disciples he says no one who will perform a miracle in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me he's not saying this guy had all the right knowledge because he wasn't walking with jesus and the rest of the disciples he's not saying that he was even doing everything right But he's saying to the extent that this man is striving to follow after me, don't consider him an enemy and don't immediately reject him. He says further, um, he will not lose his reward. If someone welcomes you, he will not soon lose his reward. Now, doctrine is important. But if we have good doctrine but poor practice, what is the test that Jesus gives here of what actual following after him looks like? giving a cup of water, welcoming the one as you would welcome a little child and and, and take care of them and those sorts of things. Jesus then continues by sharing sober realities of discipleship. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. If you cause one who is trying to follow after Jesus to stumble and not want to follow after Jesus anymore, he said it would be better if you were out in the ocean and drowned. He says, further, the goal of following after me is so important that if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, There are people in church history who have taken this literally and found after the fact to their detriment that Jesus' point was not if you can get rid of some part of your body, you'll stop sinning. Because there were monks and uh, supposed holy men of God who did various things trying to literally do what this passage says and they discovered, I can still sin with one hand. I can still sin with one foot. I can still sin with one eye they said well i'll just wall myself away from the world and they found i can still sin by myself so jesus is not saying if you get rid of parts of your body that your body is evil and the solution is get rid of the body and then you'll be holy but what he's saying is if you had to give up things that are a part of your very self in order to enter into heaven to be in God's presence, it is worth sacrificing anything and everything that stands in the way of your walk with God in order to pursue after him. So here's the person over here that you think can have no part with God. He's trying to follow after God. And you think you're following after God, there is much that you may still yet have to give up. He finishes by saying, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Fire, he says, will season or purify. If you lose your saltiness, how can you restore it? I think he's saying a very similar thing to what he said at the end of Mark chapter 8. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does a man give in exchange for his soul? If there's a day of God's judgment coming, and if all things will be purified at that point, we need to be ready for that day of judgment and not wander off into things that are far lesser, not worth pursuing, that lead us away from God. And so, along the lines of this section, what flawed goals might you pursue? We assume that the priorities we set are always God's priorities because there are priorities. But when Jesus telling, was telling about his death and resurrection, what are the disciples doing? They're arguing, who's the greatest? Well, the answer is obviously Jesus, and the disciples assumed it was one of them. When Jesus says, receive others, they tried to keep people away because they did things a different way or weren't with the true followers of Jesus. Jesus made it clear that the the priority or the default is to welcome people, not to prevent them from coming to Jesus. The path to accomplishing Jesus' goal is not to burden those eager to find Jesus. This is what the Pharisees did. In another place, Jesus says, you would take a man and you would make him twice a son of hell as yourself, binding him with things that I did not say and preventing him from following after me. Instead, we ought to teach new disciples to love Jesus himself as little children love their parents, which in the end will safeguard them from sin and from God's judgment that leads to our next point. Follow Jesus with childlike faith. Not only with humble service, but with childlike faith. Childlike faith believes God and welcomes those he loves. He gets up and he goes from there to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. Crowds gather and according to his custom, he began to teach them again. What does childlike faith look like? It believes God. What did the Pharisees demonstrate? Unbelief. They came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question whether it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. What does Jesus say? Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But God's design was two joined as one from the beginning. God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother... And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The disciples question him again in verse 10, and he says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. The Pharisees wanted a letter of the law, a set of parameters, and if Jesus' words didn't line up with their expected answer, this was going to be a way for them to catch him and trap him and trick him and have a basis to accuse him. Jesus reminds them of God's original intent. Marriage is to be for life, and we should not marry with the plan to divorce and marry another. That is adultery. There is much that the Bible says in other passages on this subject, but Jesus' point is here, the contrast between them trying to say what is the rule so I can get away with doing whatever pleases me and still be okay with God and Jesus says what did God want in the first place? Love her and be devoted to her be committed to her leave your father and mother and stay with her that's what God's original plan was yes, did Moses say it was okay if you do this? because of your sin because sin exists in the world this takes place so the the pharisees wanted to trap jesus they wanted to take the focus onto a theological argument instead of on his teaching and jesus reminds them what was god's goal love your neighbor as yourself expressed in the marriage relationship in their pride the disciples then rebuke parents bringing their children to jesus so the pharisees say what about marriage and then parents are bringing their children to jesus and the disciples say no 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 you can't come to jesus they wanted Jesus to bless their children. Why do I say that? Because in verse 16, that's what he does. But the disciples say, no, 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 you can't come to Jesus. We don't know exactly what their motivation was. Was it Jesus is busy? Was it you're not important? Was it, you know, there's lots of other things going on. But the parents said, let's bring the children to Jesus. And Jesus says, Jesus doesn't rebuke the parents for bringing their children. Jesus rebukes the disciples for keeping the parents from bringing their children to him. He says, Permit them to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So he takes the children and he blesses them and he lays his hand on them. We'll talk in just a moment what it looks like to have childlike faith. It's pretty clear from this passage that scheming to test God and trick him is not childlike faith. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That is unbelief. Rebuking those whom Jesus welcomes is not childlike faith, but pride that we know better what God wants than he does. What is childlike faith? Do you believe God taking him simply at his word? Now, Mark is not saying every last child behaves perfectly. Every last child demonstrates these characteristics really well. But he's saying, generally speaking, what's the difference between children and adults? Children believe what you tell them. We could say, well, that means they're naive and gullible. Sometimes. But that really comes down to the person that's telling them things that are false, right? With an intent to deceive. The fact that that a child will hear you and believe you is the same sort of attitude with which we have to come to God. Jesus says, if you come to me and believe in me and believe what I've said, I will receive you. You know what a lot of adults do? Well, you know, I know God said, come to me, but I think he actually meant... Come to me, bringing me all the things that you have done, so I will be pleased with you. Is that what Jesus said? No. He said, come to me. Think about it this way. It's your birthday. Somebody's going to give you a present. And you say, I will come get the present, and I will come get the present, and I will give you the $5 that I have in my wallet that someone else gave me for Christmas. And then, I will have earned the present. Do people give you presents because you earn them? It's not really a present at that point, right? But that's how we try to come to God. Here's the gift that God gives of salvation if we come to Him. He gives it freely, without cost, though it costs us everything to follow after Him. There's no charge for the gift. And we say, you know what? I need to pay you for the gift. It's as though God got us something really expensive like a new car, like some fancy truck that costs $50,000. And we say, here's 50 cents I found on the sidewalk. I am buying this gift from you. That's insulting to God. People are like, oh, but God will be pleased if I do this thing. And God says, I don't want anything that you bring. It's worthless. It's not enough. It can never earn what I'm offering you. If you come to me and accept this gift believe in me, take the gift of salvation, I will freely give it to you. I think that's the point that Jesus means when he says, come as a little child. We take him simply as his word. We don't say, well, but he actually meant this. Well, but I'm going to do this too. Well, but this other thing. We just say, what did he say? Okay, I'm going to come to him. Along those same lines, do you welcome those that Jesus loves? Do you have their humility? This is another fascinating thing about little kids that sometimes we think is a bad thing because it could be dangerous for them. But they'll see another kid and they'll run up and play with that kid. Never met them before in their life. And they'll start talking about dinosaurs or airplanes or dolls or whatever, right? And they'll be really excited about it. What do we do as adults? I don't know if I can trust you. Something about you makes me really cautious. I'm not saying we should be stupid or naive. But to the extent that we start having a conversation with someone and we find out that that person says, Hey, I follow Jesus. Our response should be joy like that of a little child, not immediately. Well, what about this thing? What about that thing? What about the other thing? Now, Should we eventually have some of those conversations? Yes, because we might believe something that's wrong that needs to be corrected by God's word. They might believe something that's wrong that needs to be corrected by God's word. But our initial response should be excitement that here's another person who wants to follow after God and we're both following after God together. Do you welcome those who Jesus loves? Childlike faith also gives up everything to follow after Jesus. Giving up riches to follow after Jesus. We see this in verses 17 through 31. The man who wanted eternal life wouldn't give up his wealth. He comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds in an interesting way. He doesn't say, I am the good teacher. He says, No one is good except God. But by the way, you know all the commandments, right? Of course. I'm good. Are you really? You just call me good teacher. I said, no one is good except God. And then you're like, I'm good. Jesus says, in his love and his compassion for this man, let's test whether you're actually good. Do you actually love God in the way that the commandments require? Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow after me. The man is sad and goes away grieving because he was rich. He loved his money, more than God his point is not that every last person needs to sell every last thing and then just wander around with nothing there's Christians who have tried to follow this passage and have taken it that way Jesus' point was for this man what was the test, what was the sticking point, what was the thing that he was unwilling to give up to follow after Jesus it was his money for someone else it could be something else right let's say that it's some kind of a relationship or let's say that it's a goal that you have or let's say that it is some belief that you've held to all your life and if Jesus were to ask you this question he would be like are you willing to give up this are you willing to give up that or willing to give up this other thing if our answer is no we're having the same response as the as the 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 young man here another passage refers to him as the rich young ruler Jesus then warns the disciples of the obstacle that wealth builds between us and God. And it's not just wealth, but this is the specific example here. How hard it is, he says, to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Some people have said, well, the thing that Jesus is referring to is not actually a needle. He's saying It is the needle gate, and a camel would go through it, and for a camel to go through it, because it was low, you had to bend down, and so it's an example of humility. But Jesus' point, based on the next thing that he says, is not, is really hard. He he, um, emphasizes even more and says, it is impossible. So I think he was actually saying, a camel going through the eye of a needle. I think we realize that that's not possible at all. Why do I say that that's the case? Because they were even more astonished. They said, who can be saved? If it's a matter of enough example of humility, if it's a matter of enough trying hard enough, then somebody's going to make it. But if it's something that is literally and physically impossible, how in the world is it going to happen unless God does it? That's Jesus' point. With men it is impossible. With God, all things are possible, including saving people, who don't know that they need God, who don't want God, who are trusting in themselves, who are proud, who are sinful, who are all these things. Peter, for better or for worse, tended to respond very quickly to different things that Jesus said, or did. We saw in the transfiguration, they're up there on the mountain. Peter's like, hey, new plan, going to stay up on the mountain. Jesus says, you need to sell all that you have and come follow me? then he says wealth is an obstacle to god and peter says well yeah but we've given up everything are we going to get it back we have left everything and followed you with the implication of so we're in the kingdom right we're gonna get some of this back right jesus responds, there is no one who's left all these things house brothers sisters mother father children farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times more. That clarification is really important, for my sake and the gospel's sake, because it is theoretically possible for someone to leave, but not to actually serve after God. They leave because they want to be thought well of by other people. They leave because they want to get something from God. They need to leave for the sake of jesus and the gospel that he has proclaimed that's the first test he says he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses brothers sisters mothers children and farms along with persecutions are you going to keep following me even when that comes along too and in the age to come eternal life what really matters is not whether you get it back now but whether you get eternal life because as he said in mark eight if you gain everything in the whole world but lose your soul what has it profited you? Does God reward those who diligently seek Him? Yeah. But not those who seek Him selfishly, not those who seek Him with wrong motives, not those who seek Him only when times are good, not those who think that this life is the more important thing than what is to come. How does wealth build a barrier between you and God? you and i could have basically nothing but still be ruled by greed and the love of money rather than love of god and even if we were to say i'm not rich i have very little compared to blank some celebrity some sports player whatever we can always find someone to compare ourselves to that has more than us right but what if we make the comparison the other way you and i are rich in this world's goods We might at different points in our lives struggle to pay bills, but we rarely, if ever, go hungry. We might not have the house we like, clothes we like, or cars we like, but we have houses and clothes and cars. In our abundance, as people in the United States, we often trust our wealth instead of God. And we should not trust our wealth or anything of ourselves because salvation and following Jesus is impossible by man's ability. Only God can do it. So if we think, I am rich, so I deserve a spot with Jesus, Jesus says no. Even if we have begun to follow God through Jesus, often like Peter, we follow God to get something. Yeah, I've done this, but now I'm thinking about the long term consequences and I'm wondering if I made the right decision. You're like you're reading things into what Peter said. I don't think I am because if jesus says give up everything follow after me you'll have a place in the kingdom and then he says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom and peter says i have given up everything to follow after you peter's thinking about all these other things that jesus has just said god rewards faithful following but if we follow jesus primarily for what he gives us instead of who he is in himself we don't really love him we love his riches and this is probably a tired illustration but if you have a relative who's well off and you only visit that relative because you want to see if they're going to give you 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever, you don't really love that person for themselves. You love them for what they're going to give you. You can love someone who gives you things and love the person for themselves and not be so focused on the what you get, Right? let's say you're going to your, your grandparents house right? and it's near your birthday or it's near some holiday if you only want to go because you think they're gonna give you five dollars ten dollars a hundred dollars you don't really love your grandparents you love the stuff they give you and that's a real danger for us because god has blessed us in so many ways and in the blessing of material wealth or knowledge or all these other sorts of things we very quickly shift our focus from the one who gives to the thing that's given. What's the answer? The answer is to humble ourselves with childlike faith. Follow not so we will be first, but grateful to be the last one in the door. Follow not for what Jesus does to make my life better now or in eternity, but because I love him. Even if he didn't give me any of these things, and he does, but even if he didn't, I would still follow after him. That's the attitude he wants us to have. Further, we should give up ambition and status to follow after Jesus. Jesus goes on, he teaches about the path of suffering that lay ahead. Peter's like, what are we going to get? Jesus is like, all these blessings and persecution, and then eternal life. And then, they're going to Jerusalem. What's significant about them going to Jerusalem? That's where Jesus is going to die. We're we're accelerating toward the end of the book, and he's going to take a third of the book to talk about these last few moments before Jesus dies. But in that, we, we see him coming back to Jerusalem. So all to this point, he said, don't say who I am, don't get the crowds to follow me, all these sorts of things. Now they're going to Jerusalem. The, the scribes and Pharisees have already been plotting to kill him with the Herodians. They've already been seeking to seize him. They've already been seeking to trap him. If he goes down toward Jerusalem, what is that going to mean? It's going to mean his death. Jesus reminds them of this. In chapter 10, he says, We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered, and they will condemn him and hand him over. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Earlier it says they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Why were they fearful? Because they know what going to Jerusalem means. And then Jesus says, and this is what's going to happen. It's as though you're afraid of spiders. And then someone starts talking to you about spiders. And I'm not trying to trivialize what's going on here. I'm just saying, it's Jesus, we would think his response would be to say, you're afraid of what's going to happen, but it's all going to be okay. That's not what he says. He's like, and it's going to be bad. But after this, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, were not as quick as Peter to respond to the, what will we get? if we keep following after you but they chose this moment of all moments and i i recognize that mark arranged the stories in a particular way but the fact that mark arranged the story in this way to make this point he's basically saying in the moment when jesus says i'm going to suffer and i'm going to die and i'm going to accomplish god's purpose they're like by the way can i have your stuff can i be really important when you come to rule and reign I be first, despite Jesus' warning against following for the sake of gain, James and John said, We want to be first among the disciples. Jesus tests their request. You don't know what you're asking to sit on your right hand and on your left. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? He's saying the cup of God's wrath, the baptism of God's judgment, this is what I have to go through before I will be restored to glory and reign. Are you ready for that? Oh yeah, absolutely. So we fault Peter for saying, well, I will never deny you, but James and John had the exact same attitude, and whether they admitted it or not, probably so did the rest of the disciples. They just weren't willing to say it out loud. You're going to follow me to the end? You're going to follow me when it gets really hard? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus says, you will drink this cup. You will be baptized. To clarify, the cup of wrath, um, I should should probably not say the cup of God's wrath because they're not going to experience it um, the way that Jesus did. But the death that he experiences, they were going to face. All of the disciples, as far as we know, except perhaps John, And even then, it seems possible that he was put to death as a martyr. All of them are put to death for the sake of following after Jesus. At the very least, Jesus is saying something like this, you're going to be with me in that moment, but you're not ready for it the way that you think you are. He says, to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but for those for whom it has been prepared. The Father has said who this will be, and this is not for you to claim. So then the other disciples get frustrated, angry, resentful. So Jesus explains again the nature of his kingdom. So the ten are upset. You went to Jesus and you asked this? Jesus says, you don't need to be upset. You are all thinking the exact same thing. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them And their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to be great shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What's the difference between human kingdoms and God's kingdom? The ruler serves. Jesus, in other gospel accounts, washes the disciples feet puts himself in a position of a humble servant and even in that moment they still weren't fully understanding what it was he was demonstrating for them but humble service childlike faith these two things are exemplified in this last story at the end of chapter 10 Bartimaeus ignores the crowds to find Jesus this is one of those stories that you get in uh kids books right there's one that we read when we were little it's like blind Bartimaeus is sitting by the road he hears the feet of the people he hears the excitement as they start to talk he hears Jesus voice I'm not saying those stories are bad but set in this context don't miss the point of why Mark puts this story at this moment he's near Jericho And people argue about which Jericho, because it says they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho, there were actually two Jerichos. There was a Jewish Jericho and a Gentile Jericho. And so it's quite plausible that Jesus was leaving the one and going to the other one. Um, They encounter this man named Bartimaeus, which seems to have been a Jewish name, because that was the, the names that were given. Bar meant son of. And we see the the definition there, the son of Timaeus. So he's sitting by the road. So here's a Jewish man who can't see, sitting by the road. He heard it was Jesus the Nazarene. He cries out and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We're like, okay, great. He said, son of David, what's the big deal about that? He's acknowledging that he's the Messiah. Son of David is a recognition that Jesus is the one who's the son of David, the heir of David, who is to come as the Messiah. And he's, so he's recognizing, you're the one who is to come. Have mercy on me. The people tried to get him to be quiet. They were sternly telling him to be quiet. They're like, hey, no. We're here to see Jesus. You're making a disturbance. Be quiet and stay where you are. He cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him here. Notice Jesus doesn't stop until this man keeps crying out for Jesus. So they called the blind man. Now they're like, well, he noticed you. Now you should go over there. Take courage. Stand up. He's calling for you. So he doesn't, he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to get up slowly. I'm going to go over there. He throws off his cloak. He leaps up and he goes over to Jesus answering him jesus said what do you want me to do for you the blind man said rabboni to regain my sight my master i want my sight back and jesus said to him go your faith has made you well and immediately the man went and started telling a bunch of people immediately the man went and went back to his house no immediately the man got up and began following him on the road Why is the story of Bartimaeus at the end of this section? I would argue it's because Mark put it here to demonstrate the childlike faith and humble service that says, Jesus is the one who can help me and he's the only one who can help me and I will go through anything to get to him. And having found him, it doesn't matter what I was doing before, now I'm going to follow after him. Bartimaeus is the opposite of the rich man the rich man has everything but won't follow jesus bartimaeus has nothing he's a beggar on the side of the road he just wants his sight back he responds in faith and he immediately begins following jesus whether he knew or not all that lay ahead for jesus in jerusalem he didn't even ask the question he just went the disciples wanted a guarantee that they'd at least get something out of it before they're willing to go down to jerusalem bartimaeus already had nothing and needed Jesus in order to have anything. And so in his story, all these themes come together. The childlike faith that refuses to be quiet when one who gives good gifts is right at hand. The humble willingness to receive what Jesus can do instead of trying to do it himself. He doesn't come and say, what can I do to be saved? He waits and Jesus says, what can I do for you? He says this. And then to follow and serve the one who's delivered him. Follow Jesus in humble service with childlike faith. Are you like the disciples who trusted in themselves? Let's build a tabernacle, let's forget to pray, let's try to be first. Are you like the scribes who tested Jesus to trap him? Or the disciples who turned away the ones Jesus just said he welcomed? Are you like Bartimaeus, blind but now you see, having nothing but now having everything in Jesus, but following him for who he is and leaving everything else behind? Follow Jesus in humble service with childlike faith. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would humble us in our supposed wisdom. That we would come before you simply trusting. Yes, we often have questions. Yes, there are things that don't always make sense. And yes, there's a time and a place for us to try to understand some of those things better. But in the moment that we come to you for salvation and to begin to follow after you, you say to come without any of those things we don't trust in ourselves we can't buy you with money with status with knowledge with any kind of authority of ourselves we have to say I have nothing but I will come to you we can't then say alright I'm on my way to heaven I'll do whatever I want I'll make my own plans do my own thing we have to follow you with humble service we turn away from our idols we turn to the living and true God and we wait for Jesus to come back and in the meantime we do what you call us to do. Lord, in the moments when we have tried to complicate the Christian life and make it what you never intended it to be, in the moments when our priorities have come in place of yours, our ideas have come over yours, help us to see those things and to turn away from them and to turn back to simply following after you. Not naive, not unaware of the fact that following you means persecution and difficulty along the way, but saying it does not matter because I have Jesus and that's all I need. He is all I need. Help us, Lord, to be as little children, welcoming, following, serving, expressing joy in you so that we might find you and not something short of you and who you are and what you want for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.